the Eighth Circuit Network. We make things. Put them in your brain. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to yet another episode of Funk Radio. This is your awesome DJ slash host, Kyle. And this is your super awesome DJ host, Peter. So, is super awesome like exponentiality of awesome? Um, Twice as awesome as me? I think we need some graphics to show us the the difference between these two. I don't actually... Well, I happen to have a PowerPoint right here. No. Good thing we can't see it. Isn't an audio PowerPoint? It is. It's just me talking about graphs rather than showing graphs. That sounds so helpful. Right? (laughs) Okay, so, for all you funky listeners, we have a very interesting episode for you guys today. As always. I don't want to necessarily say we thought it'd be fun, but we thought that... It would be intriguing. It would be... There you go. It would be intriguing to talk about different soul and funk artists who passed away due to unnatural circumstances, mm-hmm. and then also talk about the last songs that they either performed or recorded before their demise. And sadly, in doing our, my research, there are quite a few artists throughout the decades that have passed away pre- prematurely, either due to illness or murder or freak accident. And in some of them, there's not even, like, there's there's multiple stories about what actually happened. So in some cases, we don't even know specifically what happened, but there are rumors and stuff like that. Exactly. We thought it would be interesting for you listeners to kind of go into depth into how some of these um, different artists met their unfortunate down, I wouldn't say downfall, I guess, unfortunately passed away. Yeah. Because as disheartening as some of the stories are, they're really, really kind of fascinating just from a historical standpoint. Mm Mm-hmm. So yeah, we got a, we got about I think like nine artists here. Yeah. Um, the first artist that I wanted to go into because I know we've talked about him briefly in many many episodes, but I don't think we ever went fully into depth is Marvin Gaye. As many of you probably do know, if you either were around in the '80s or just have any concept of who Marvin Gaye is, he was a '60s soul singer that was popular for about two decades until unfortunately he passed away April 1st, 1984. And as many of you probably do know, he was killed by his own father. But what some of you might not know is that um, basically for a long period, he actually battled with um, depression and suicidal thoughts. You know, he dealt with this for a long period of time, and many people attribute it to the uh, death of his one of his musical partners and longtime friends, Tammy Terrell, who we'll get into in a sec. Mm-hmm. But basically, after dealing with massive depression, he wanted to make a change and put more positivity in his life. So by the early 80s, he was really trying to turn his life around. So he moved back in with his parents and lived with them, which, you know, at the age of, what, then 43, 44, you know, although his motives were pure, I guess I could say, there was obviously some tension there. And while living with his parents, um, on March 31st, 1984, they uh, he got involved with an argument with them over some misplaced business documents of sorts of sorts, which had occurred in uh, Marvin Gaye's bedroom. Marvin and his father got in, a, in like a physical scuffle where Marvin physically tried to intimidate his father, and he ordered his father out of the room, and his father left. So then the next day, on April 1st, they started arguing yet again, and uh, Gaye's father was yelling at him from downstairs while Marvin Gaye was up in his room. Basically, Marvin was telling him, you know, you want to yell at me, you know, talk to talk to mom, <laughs> I guess. So he was basically trying to get him to, you know, discuss this with his mom and not him. And he told his dad, he's like, you know, don't don't come in my room. <laughs> this is, you know, when he's 44 years old, too, kind of odd. But uh, anyways, so then Gay's father marched upstairs to argue with Gay's mother. And then Gay once again began to physically dominate his father, pushing him around, shoving him, and even knocked him down and started kicking him. Mm. And then Marvin Gay's mom intervened and separated the two. And then Marvin Gay retreated back into his room. Shortly thereafter, at about 11.30 a.m., Marvin Gaye's father entered into Gaye's room once more with a gun and shot him twice while he was sitting on his bed. And the first shot that he killed him with punctured through his chest, hitting his lung, heart, diaphragm, liver, and stomach. So basically, he shot him at an extreme downward angle. So the bullet went through basically every major organ. And he was shot him a second time, but the first shot proved basically fatal. So Gay was taken to a nearby hospital, which what was pronounced dead on the scene, basically, once he got there. And this, the really the, the saddest part to all of this, I think, is that Gay's father only served five years probation for the crime because he pleaded guilty to voluntary manslaughter. How is that so, even possible? I have no idea, but basically he pleaded guilty to killing his own son and didn't get any jail time for it. He was on probation for five years. Like, how does that happen? That's kind of scary. Maybe there was, you can do that. Maybe he chalked it up to self-defense of some sort, but that's just absolutely, like, unfathomable. And I'm not sure how that self-defense when Marvin Gaye's just sitting on the bed. Right? I mean, that's regardless cool. of if he was, like, pushing you around, I mean, the altercation seemed to be over. Mm. That is one of the more tragic, I guess, um, 
one of the more well-known ones too. Yeah, one of the most definitely one of the more well-known. It was huge in the news because Marvin Gaye. I mean, he wasn't near, he wasn't as popular as he was in the early '70s and '60s, but he was still really darn popular in the. Uh, around that time and then it just came out that oh yeah his dad killed him it was all over the news i guess at his funeral over ten thousand people showed up well to uh pay their respects to him so that's pretty impressive uh but yeah so that's definitely one of the more commercially well-known i guess deaths of a famous soul artist but yeah so as he as we said he passed away in 1984 at the age of 44 only not even two years prior he recorded his final album before this device called midnight love which he recorded in 1982 i wanted to play a specific song from that album called till tomorrow which i thought was like hauntingly titled and the subject matter is a little bit haunting due to the fact that he did die just two years later some stuff was released posthumously either through motown or other record labels that he hadn't you know chosen to release during his career i think there was an album that came out in like the 90s Mm. but i do want to play a little clip of till tomorrow from his album midnight love so here you go As sad as it sounds, while this is a very sad incident of itself, it is not the most depressing uh, of the ones we have, mm-hmm. just from a either moral or just depressing standpoint, I guess. Right. But yeah, as I mentioned, we're talking about Marvin Gaye. One of his very, very close friends and longtime singing partners was artist Tammy Terrell. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you want to tell us a little bit about Tammy Terrell, Mr. Peter? Yes, I did. Well, Marvin Gaye was shot by his father at age 44, Tammy Terrell, who was very close to Marvin Gaye for a while. Um, she died of a brain tumor at age 24, which is scary considering how young she was. Right? We're 22. We're, we're, we're almost 23 ourselves, so I mean... No! I don't oh my to... gosh, we're exactly a month away from being 23. Are we? Oh, we are. It's our wow. month away birthday today. <laughs> Yay. People should get us presents. So a little bit of background on uh, Tammy Terrell's relationships. So while they never dated, she actually was romantically interested in singer Sam Cooke, who we will also be talking about later, unfortunately. She also had a budding friendship with Gene Chandler. He is one of the singers from The Temptations. Is is that true? I didn't know that. Uh, Hold on, double check. It's either The Temptations or the the other one. That's the duop group. Oh, really? Because I know him like by himself, but... Impressions, I'm sorry. My bad. Oh, okay. Anyway, so, like I said, she was romantically interest, interested in Sam Cooke, and she had a friendship with Gene Chandler. So in 1962, at age 17, uh, Tammy Terrell signed with James Brown, and the two of them engaged in a sexual relationship. Unfortunately, this turned out to be abusive. I know James Brown had some issues of his own. And a lot some, of history Some with, women problems. He had a lot of women problems. Yes, he did. After a really horrific incident with Brown backstage after a show, uh, Tammy Terrell asked Chandler who witnessed the event firsthand, uh, to take her to the bus station so she could get home. But Chandler later called up Terrell's mother to pick her up. And after this, this ended her two-year affair with uh, James Brown, not surprisingly. <laughs> um, and so in 1965, which is about three years later, Tammy Terrell forged a romance with the Temptations lead singer David Ruffin. And then the following year after that, he surprised her with a marriage proposal. <laughs> Again, so she really had some bad luck because David Ruffin she found out was actually married and had three children and another girlfriend also living in Detroit. This led to some uh, unfortunate fighting between the two of them because apparently he had some lady issues of his own. Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately for her, um, she did develop a really close relationship with her duet partner, Marvin Gaye, who we just talked about. And they had a very close uh, platonic affair. So, I mean, it's often alleged that the relationship grew into a brief romance, but both of those singers denied that claim. Ashford and Simpson, who are famous writers for Motown, and especially for, for these two, um, and Gay even later on, stated that the relationship between them was almost sibling-like. So I guess that explains why maybe they weren't romantically involved too much. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, they reported as having opposite personalities, whereas Gay was shy and introverted, Terrell was more streetwise and extroverted, which sounds kind of like a fun combination. Yeah, I think they kind of balanced each other out in a way, and I think that's why probably they were so close. Mm-hmm. They were the yin to each other's yang or something. Exactly. So getting on to her death, by early 1970, Terrell had been forced to be confined to a wheelchair and suffered from blindness, hair loss, and and weighed only 93 pounds due to a malignant brain tumor. Following her eighth and final operation on January 25th, 1970, uh, she relapsed into a coma where she would remain for the next month and a half of her life. 
Um, on March 16th, 1970, she died of complications from brain cancer. That's very sad. Yeah, as we said before, this deeply affected Marvin, and I think this basically completely sent him into like horrible depression for the next decade. I remember also reading it with Tammy, uh, just to add more sadness to her story, unfortunately. It was uh, said by her sister uh, in her memoir that Tammy, at the age of 11, had uh, was sexually assaulted at a birthday party by a bunch of boys and basically raped. So uh-huh. basically, from, what her, from her sister's... Wait, at her own 11th birthday party? No, no, not her own. God, that would be awful. No, no. Someone else's. Oh, the, all, the, all, the, all the boys were charged uh, with the crime, luckily. Yeah, basically from her t- sister's perspective, it completely changed her personality after that, which kind of caused her to be very promiscuous, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term, which, of course, led to this short fling of multiple romances mm-hmm. with a bunch of guys in and out of Motown. Yeah. I mean, just to have that kind of stuff happen to you and then die that young is just absolutely horrible. Yeah. So, like I was saying, Tammy Terrell died in 1970, um, and the year before... 1969, she sang one of her last recordings with Marvin Gaye because they were very famous for doing duets. The song was called California Soul. Now, this is actually a cover originally done by Marlena Shaw. I actually came to know that song recently. It's actually been one of my more uh, recent favorites, um, but I am aware of this version as well, so that's pretty good. Let's go ahead and listen to a clip of California Soul. really too bad that she had to go so young it's kind of one of those things where especially at that age you just wonder what they could have become if they were given the chance to have a long and fulfilling career i mean she was an amazing singer so well i mean considering how young, i never would have guessed that she was this young when she i had no idea this was one of the ones that in my research i was just like wow really yeah but i mean considering that she really did accomplish a lot mm-hmm. of her career because she I mean she only started at 17, 17. probably even before that yeah so i mean that's Less than 10 years. Yeah. Kyle, I think you should tell us about our, our next guy, Otis Redding. For those of you that don't know, I didn't even know this, actually. I know he died, but he actually died in a plane crash at the age of 26. Mm. Regarding his death, basically him and his bandmates were on a small private plane trying to head to Madison, Wisconsin, but took off in very inclement weather, mm. basically because they were pressured to get to the venue on time because they had a show. Due to the inclement weather, they crashed into the water about four miles outside their destination. Uh, sadly, the, the only member uh, that was on the plane that actually survived the crash was a member of the Barkays, Ben Colley. He, I guess he was sleeping on the plane shortly before the accident, and he woke up just before impact and looked over to see his bandmate, uh, Fallon Jones, look out the window and exclaim, oh no. And as Colley said, the last thing he remembered before the crash was unbuckling his seatbelt, and then he kind of blacked out and then woke up and found himself in frigid water, grasping onto a seat cushion to keep afloat. And unfortunately, because he couldn't swim, he was unable to save any of the others. I guess once the uh, story broke on the news, uh, fellow R&B singer Aretha Franklin stated, quote, I heard it on the TV. My sister Caroline and I stopped everything and stayed glued to the TV and radio. It was a tragedy. Shocking. Hmm. So it was pretty big news back then because it was so unexpected because it was basically just a freak plane accident. Yeah. Otis Redding's guitarist was very famous guitarist uh, Donald Duck Dunn, mm. and he was supposed to be on the plane, but for whatever reason, chose not to. Maybe of because course, it was risky with the bad weather. That could have definitely been it. I read somewhere that James Brown, in, in, in an interview, said that in talking to Redding, he warned him not to try and make it to Madison because of the weather, but mm. Redding didn't take his advice. That's too bad. But yeah, Donald Duck Dunn, obviously didn't go on that flight and obviously had a very long career and i think he just passed away this last year himself Mm. so unfortunately yeah otis redding perished with most of his band in that crash and it's it's kind of it's kind of sad but weird because not two weeks beforehand he recorded easily his most famous song called uh sitting on the dock of the bay uh in recording the song redding was inspired by the beatles album sgt pepper's lonely hearts club band he really wanted to try to emulate that sound but stacks which he was at at the time was kind of against it because mm. he had kind of forged his own sound to that point the, the stacks crew and his bandmates were also dissatisfied with the new sound as his one of his bandmates Stuart, said that he thought it wasn't really r&b while his bassist donald duck dunn who we just mentioned feared it would damage stacks reputation 
Reading Against Their Wishes thought it was his best song yet and correctly believed that it would top the charts because it ended up being easily one of his most famous songs. Yeah, I mean, and, I think the song is basically synonymous with Otis Redding. Yeah. Because, I mean, I thought he recorded this only like three days before he died or something like that. Uh, it was very close. It was, it was, like, it was really it was close. like easily within like a, like a week and a half. Yeah. Like, I don't know the exact date. I just remember it was freakishly soon beforehand. I was listening to the song, I think it was last week, and it occurred to me that this is his most famous song that he's most well-known for. Yeah. But then it was, like, so shortly before he died. It's kind of interesting to see that. You know, not to be sad, but just... Yeah, right. More freakishness is the fact that when he crashed, he crashed near... Because there's a a ton of lakes around Madison. Mm -hmm. He crashed near University Bay. (laughs) Mm. So... His song is called "Sitting on the Dock of the Bay," and he crashed almost into a bay. That's very close to the university. That's kind of weird. So just kind of ominously creepy. Mm. Who is the other band that died in the plane crash? There, oh my gosh! Uh, wait, in this particular one or just in general? In general, there was another. I don't. I can't there who it is. are uh, just in looking at this up. There's so many people that died in plane crashes. Um, probably the most famous one was Buddy Holly and Richie Valens mm. in the '50s died in a plane crash. I can't remember. I can't remember off the top of my head. I just know a lot of famous people die in plane crashes. Yeah. It's weird because I mean, plane crashes are like the chance of that happening are like so slim. Well, but then this it, is what it this happens is, to so many famous people. It's really this funny. is what this is this is what I'm thinking with that because with this incident, this incident with um, Otis Redding and also with the incident regarding Richie Valens and Buddy Holly, which were also very famous in the 50s, mm. both instances had to do with them flying small private planes in really crappy weather, mm. and. When you're traveling on tour like this, you're very pressured by the managers and the producers to get to places on time, not cancel shows, mm-hmm. just be quick about everything. Whereas any sane person wouldn't fly in this terrible weather like these guys did. Yeah. I think there's this massive pressure put on them to like get to shows on time and to, and whatnot because you know money and fundraising and all that junk. Yeah. Whereas as, as a normal person or a normal pilot would be like, heck no, I'm not flying in this weather. They did so anyway, yeah. out of pressure, either personal pressure or personal integrity, or out of the pressure from their managers. Yeah. Unfortunately, this leads to bad instances like this. Well, plus, I mean, if you're in a private plane, obviously the the chances of something going wrong are a lot higher than if you're like in a commercial jet or something. Exactly, exactly. And they take private planes because it's easier to hop around from city to city. And they have money. And land at small airports and whatnot. Yeah. Oh, uh, another one that just came to mind. Most of the band Leonard Skinner died in a helicopter crash. Hmm. It's a helicopter, it's not a plane. But they were all in a helicopter? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Most of them died. I forgot which ones survived, but yeah, that's they were really popular in the 70s, too. That sucks. Yeah, right? So Should we go ahead and listen to a clip of Sitting on the Dock of the Bay? Yeah, I think we should, because awesome song. roll away again, yeah. I'm sitting on the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away yeah, it's, it's funny because although this song really is kind of a, a step away from a lot of his other stuff, I, and I'm sure most people like it the best. Mm. So it's it's funny that it was so, that people were so against it when posthumously it ended up becoming his most famous song. It's just, yeah. and I don't know if it was out of, if, if its success was partially due to the fact of his sudden death, mm. I can't. Yeah, that could possibly be true. Yeah, I can't make that assumption, but I can also see why it would happen. But at the same time, it's definitely just a really well-written song, and you can really hear the tranquility, I guess, in his voice. So yeah. it's it's eerie to think that he died in this way, but then the song, he sounds so at peace. Yeah. So, as we were saying, Otis Redding died in an accident. Donny Hathaway, on the other hand, who was another famous soul singer, he actually committed suicide at age 33, which is very depressing. So, a little bit of background on his death. So, in 1979, he started recording for a second album of duets between him and Roberta Flack, because they had done another one a couple of years before, because they, they were pretty close. Over the years, he started he started becoming very mentally ill, which caused him to be very erratic, and that really drove a wedge between him and Roberta Flack. So, for, I think, I want to say it was a couple of years, they were basically not even talking to each other after they had been so close. But then later on, they actually reconciled, and they came back together. And they were very happy about that. So then they started recording sessions for the second album in 1979. So on January 13th of that year, um, Hathaway began recording a recording session at which Eric Mercury and James Matum were present. Um, Mercury and Matum each reported that although Hathaway's voice sounded good, he began behaving really irrationally 
and was acting very paranoid and delusional. And even according to Matum, Hathaway said that white people were trying to kill him and connected his brain to a machine for the purpose of stealing his music and his sound. And obviously, that makes absolutely no sense. But uh, as I was saying, he his uh, mental capacity was really deteriorating at this point. So basically, yeah, he developed. I mean, to get more psychological, he developed a really severe form of schizophrenia. Yeah, yeah. he was hearing voices and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Actually, doesn't he have a song? Yeah, he's a, he has a song called Voices Inside. That's creepy. Which is kind of creepy, actually. Like, I, I don't know if that has anything to do with that, but that's kind of creepy. Yeah, I don't think that does, but it's kind of a strange coincidence. Anyway, so Hathaway was saying that white people were trying to steal his music. So Eric Mercury, he stopped the recording session, everybody went home. A couple hours later, Hathaway was found dead on the sidewalk below his the window of his 15th floor room in New York, in New York's Essex House Hotel. Quite obviously, he had jumped from his balcony from his 15th floor room and jumped to his death. Um, Eric Mercury claimed that You Are My Heaven was the last song that Hathaway recorded before his death and was featured on his duet album with Roberta Flack, which I think was in, I want to say that was 1981. I think so. That that was finally released. Because I remember, because it was, it was her album, but then it featured songs with her and Donnie. But yeah, like I said, so You Are My Heaven, we know for sure was the last song that they recorded together. Also another, you know, just ironic that the song You Are My Heaven is the last thing he records before he dies, since those two ideas yeah. are closely linked. Just a little bit more information I dug up regarding his uh, ment- mental schizophrenia. During the biggest part of his career, Hathaway began dealing with severe bouts of depression, and it was found that he was suffering from paranoid schizophrenia and had to take a really strong medication daily to try to control the illness. However, his wife said that he wasn't really very diligent in taking the prescription, which often caused him to sort of relapse and end up in the hospital, either you know to keep him from hurting himself or others. Mm-hmm. And... Basically, because of that, over the course of the 70s, his mental instability kind of destroyed his personal life, and the effects of his depression really kind of drove a wedge between him and Roberta Flack, as we were saying before. Mm-hmm. And they didn't really reconcile for a long period of time because of that. So I'm glad they did, though, before yeah, definitely. Uh, he died. Exactly. Like, just kind of make amends in some respects, so you don't, like... I, could, I couldn't imagine how it, would, how it would have been for Roberta Flack if Donnie Hathaway had passed away, like... Mm-hmm. from his illness without her ever making amends. Yeah. It's good that that happened. Yeah. So why don't we go ahead and listen to a little piece of You Are My Heaven by Donny Hathaway, featuring Roberta Flack. Really great song, definitely a popular song by Donny Hathaway, and a very, very unfortunate circumstance to which he died. Mm-hmm. All, a lot of the, a lot of really great, talented people in any medium or profession always seem to have some sort of problem mentally. Like I, I don't want to say that it's the cause of their talent or creativity, but it just it's just so sad that that people like that are so usually tortured and mentally inside. Like. Mm great artists or painters or thinkers or whatever whoever. yeah it seems to be a little bit of a trend probably people yeah. who have a lot more artistic tendencies brain wise they probably it probably also you know has a connection with developing certain uh, oh, dis- sure. disorders and stuff like that yeah or a certain disorders you know allow for how bad they may, may be allow the brain to make certain connections that a normal person can't mm-hmm. it's a shame but he still made really good music while he was alive yeah Moving on a bit, another artist that I wanted to discuss is um, Sam Cooke, who, similar to Donny Hathaway, died at the age of 33, but he was shot on December 11, 1964, at the Hacienda Motel on South Figueroa Street in L.A. via a gunshot to the torso. Accounts of the occurrence stated that he was he had forcibly taken this woman, Alisa Boyer, to the motel in order to, fit, to uh, sexually assault her. Once he took her to the motel, she had managed to escape. Well, he was really drunk, right? Yes, he was incredibly So drunk. that's probably how she was able to escape. Yeah, exactly. And so she escaped, and then Cook ran to the front office of the motel, basically completely naked, asking the manager, Bertha Franklin, quote, where did my lady go? And then became enraged at her when she told him, I have no idea what you're talking about. Mm. Franklin reported that she had shot Cook in self-defense because he had attacked her in a fit of rage after he, quote, broke into her office residence. Mm-hmm. But... The details regarding the whole case involving Cook's death are kind of in dispute. His final words after being shot were, quote, Lady, you shot me. And then he charged at her, to which she then hit him with a broom and caused him to collapse and die from the trauma of the gunshot. Regarding the legitimacy of 
the accounts, there is a sort of a, cons- a conspiracy theory of sorts. I don't, I don't like to call it that because then it makes it sound like only crazy people could think of this, but it seemed <laughs> like it could be plausible, so I'll leave you guys to make your own judgments. Cool. But regarding the uh, woman that he had planned to quote-unquote quote assault, Elisa Boyer, her testimony was really the only account of what happened between the two of them because there was no one around. There was also circumstantial evidence regarding the fact that Sam Cooke had about $1,000 in cash on him that he was reportedly carrying around that was never recovered after the crime, and the fact that Elisa Boyer had been arrested soon after for prostitution. So this invited some speculation that Boyer may have actually willingly gone with him to the motel, being a prostitute, and then slipped out of the room with Cook's money, and also she took his clothes, hence why he was naked, rather than to to escape an attempted rape. Uh, furthermore, at the funeral, other uh, another famous singer, Etta James, said she had viewed the body, and, and that the injuries she observed were far beyond the scope of what the assailant, Bertha Franklin, had accounted, as well as what would be considered judicially prudent to killing somebody, basically. Bertha basically Franklin, it was like a lot more than yeah Bertha Franklin said that she shot him first she said she shot him once and then she recanted that and said she shot him three times uh, and then hit him with a broomstick once and he collapsed however in viewing the body he had multiple bruises broken bones someone I remember even accounted that the beating was so severe that his like head had almost become not physically detached but structurally detached from his shoulders because you know most of us bone wise so, regarding her saying it was self-defense, but then in looking at the body, basically, those who viewed it said it looked like he was beat to a bloody pulp, invites some sort of skepticism regarding that. So, obviously, some people could chalk that up to it was a premeditated assault. You know, actually, there's a song, because you said that at first she said she shot him one time, and then she later said that she shot him three times. Mm-hmm. It actually reminds me of a Sam Cooke song called Frankie and Johnny, which tells about how this guy's girlfriend mistakes him for cheating on her and then so she goes and shoots him three times really and then yeah and then he's like no why did you shoot me i still love you and stuff like that so but it just kind of reminded me of that it's kind of interesting it's funny the i guess the sad thing i guess surrounding this too is that because he died at such a young age a lot of his songs including his his most famous song a change is going to come were actually posthumously released i mean he had recorded so many that yeah didn't even get released before he died he had recorded a bunch that were going to be released on a forthcoming album, and he died before the album was released, so they just released it posthumously. Hmm. And one of the songs off that album was A Change Is Gonna Come, which is, which is far his way his famous. most famous. Yeah. And also, another sad thing is after Cook's death, his widow, Barbara Cook, went on and married Bobby Womack. Really? And Cook's older daughter, Linda, then went on to marry Bobby's brother, Cecil Womack, which is kind of creepy. Oh, and, the, and then they made Womack and Womack. Which was a duo. Exactly. That's fun. So, a little creepy, but, I mean, part of, I guess, the tragedy of his life, too, is not not even a year and a half before he died, his uh, newborn youngest son died at 18 months, I want to say. Oh, wow. After drowning in a pool at a, at a hotel in front of their place they were staying. Oh, wow. That definitely deeply affected him, which it said led him to heavy drinking and mm. just Possibly erratic behavior. Yeah, erratic behavior. Do we know what the last song is that he recorded? Yeah, one of the last songs that he did record that was off this album, that was also the same album as Change Is Gonna Come, is the song Ain't That Good News, which mm. also kind of creepy because it was bad news for him, I guess. So let's listen to a little clip of that. My baby's coming home tomorrow Ain't that good news, man, ain't that news Baby's coming home tomorrow Ain't that news, man, ain't that news, I got a letter, just the other So that was actually released March 1st, 1964, and as we said earlier, he died on December 11th, 1964. Yeah, he did a lot, he, he basically started in 57 and was recording all the way to 64. Mm-hmm. His famous song, A Change Is Gonna Come, was released as a single December 22nd, 1964. So it was released 11 like days 11 after, days after his death. After he died. Wow. So that, Is that on purpose? I have no idea. Hmm. I mean, maybe... Uh, I mean, they, they, could, they obviously could have stopped it if they wanted to, so... Well, yeah, that's... I don't know exactly. I don't know if they were... If they did that uh, due to the public nature of his death or what, but uh, mm-hmm. definitely rocketed him to posthumous stardom. Mm-hmm. I guess we should move along then. Yeah, yeah. So the next person that we want to talk about is called Robert Johnson. He's basically 
for lack of a better term, the godfather of blues. He was the first blues guy. Okay. Although blues is a little bit from R&B and soul. His death is really extremely well known because mm. he died really young. And there are conflicting accounts of whether he was stabbed or poisoned, but basically he was murdered. Mm. So. Johnson died on August 16th, 1938, at the age of 27. So this is you know a couple of decades before everyone else. But like we were saying, this is more of the, the more of the blues era. So he died at the age of 27 near Greenwood, Mississippi. So like we were saying, there's conflicting stories about how he died, so no one actually knows for sure what the hell happened. But there's been a number of theories based on these different accounts. So Johnson had been playing for a few weeks at a country dance in a town about 15 miles from Greenwood. According to one theory, he was murdered by the jealous husband of a woman with whom he had been flirting with. In an account by fellow blues legend Sonny Boy Williamson, Johnson had been flirting with a married woman at a dance where she gave him a bottle of whiskey poisoned by her husband. So when Johnson took the bottle, Williamson knocked it out of his hand, and uh, Johnson replied, don't ever knock a bottle out of my hand. Soon after, he was offered another poisoned bottle and accepted it. So Johnson was reported to have begun feeling ill the evening after, and over the next three days, his condition steadily worsened, and a witness reported that he died in a cold and convulsive state of severe pain, which is really, really terrible. It sounds like the two accounts are, or this woman's husband either stabbed Robert Johnson or he poisoned him. Yeah. You don't really hear about people poisoning each other. Right. Yeah, really strange. Right? It seems odd. It's funny, though, because I guess in the conflicting nature of the account, the poison that was reported to have been used was called strychnine. I've heard of that. Oh, okay. I guess people who know how strychnine works knows that it's it's very poisonous in, in that it will kill you in a matter of hours and not days, as was reported that he suffered for three days. Mm-hmm. And because strychnine is so, has a really incredibly distinctive odor and taste, it, wouldn't, it couldn't really be disguised even in a strong bottle of liquor. Mm. So unless you're just a complete idiot, you know, you'd be like, hey, this liquor smells funny or this liquor tastes awful. Um, yeah. And I guess I guess on top of that, it would take a very large amount of the poison strychnine to be consumed in a single sitting to really prove fatal. Mm. So. Yeah, I was wondering maybe if he had just put a little bit in, which is why it would have taken longer and why Johnson hadn't noticed it. But it sounds like you kind of need a lot. For Perha- it perhaps. Yeah. Um, also, who carries around poison with them? Uh, <laughs> dance. What the heck? People, I have no idea. Let me look. Let me see what strychnine is. Maybe it's used in something. Oh, it's rat poison. That uh, could be would be something I guess you'd have in your house if you have a rodent problem. But that still doesn't answer why he brought it to the party. <laughs> yeah, really. Well, I mean, it, it, actually, it, well, because he had been there, because it said that he had been doing it for a couple of weeks at this country dance. So, I mean. If he had been flirting with her one night, I guess the next night. Exactly. If yeah. he did it again, the husband was ready with the poison. Exactly. It's it's more sadness regarding his death is that basically because he had died so long ago, the exact location of his gravesite is basically unknown. Really? There's different there's different markers that have been erected at different places around Greenwood, but basically because of the fact that no one knows where the body went, seems more like foul play. Wait, like seriously? somebody got rid of him or got rid of the body. Wait, so no one knows specifically how he died, and nobody knows where the body is. Nobody knows how he died, and nobody knows what happened to his body. That is freaky. Yeah. Wow. Uh, it says here that research in the 1980s and 90s strongly suggests that Johnson was buried in the graveyard of Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church, not far from Greenwood, in an, an unmarked grave. So, kind of sketch. Well, that's less sketch than it could be, I guess. Yeah, if they, like, you know, pulled a, pulled a Breaking Bad and tried to dissolve him with acid or something. Yeah, really. So, like I said, a little bit more blues than R&B, but pretty interesting way to die. But uh, he did record a lot of songs, and one of the last songs that he did record before his death was the song Love in Vain, recorded that same year in 1937. So let's have a little listen. Well, I felt lonesome, I was lonesome, and I could not help but cry all my love in vain. And the train, it left the station it's funny because peter have you ever heard of the term the 27 club i don't think so okay so basically there's this really freaky phenomenon that a bunch of different famous musicians all died at the age of 27 including robert johnson Jimi hendrix janice joplin uh, i think jim morrison kurt cobain from nirvana and i think uh just recently amy winehouse died at the age of 27 so it's just a really freaky occurrence that uh, many many famous musicians meet their demise at the same age well actually on that topic the others we interviewed a couple episodes ago james higgins yeah he released his debut album on his 27th birthday um don't don't put that don't put that evil on him 
No, no, no. But I'm, what I'm saying is that because he called it out while he was pushing the album before it came out, uh-huh. he was saying basically, you know, this is a big part of my life as an artist because either I'm going to die of a drug overdose or I'm going to be really successful. And I don't do drugs, so it should be good. So he ended up releasing his debut album on his 27th birthday. So I guess that's good luck for him, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but yeah, I, I, it's strange to see that that's kind of a landmark age for yeah, us. It's very, it's, it's pretty odd, but yeah, so that's another, I guess, sad death. Sorry, As sad. opposed to a happy death. <laughs> there could be happy deaths. I don't. Shut up. No, uh, I, no, there could be a happy death, I suppose. Oh, Linda Jones, who I don't think we talk, we're talking about. I guess she died of diabetes. Uh, Linda Jones also died at the age of 27, hmm. 1972. She's a soul singer, for those of you that don't know. That's too bad. Yeah. I hope we don't join the 27 Club. Oh, God. Uh, yeah, knock on wood. What kind of wood was that? That was crappy Target brand desk wood. I don't know. <laughs> Moving on to our next artist, one that many of you may have heard of, Curtis Mayfield. Famous for um, doing the soundtrack to Superfly in, I want to say, like, 73-ish. I think so. Perhaps. Curtis Mayfield, unfortunately, died of paralysis slash diabetes at age 57. So, actually... A bit, bit older than most. A bit older. I, I, I don't want to say fortunately. I mean, I guess so. He lasted a lot longer than some of these other people by 30 years plus. Mm-hmm. So, that's good. He died, actually, a bit more recently in 1999. Um, but going backward a little bit, on August 13th, 1990, Mayfield was paralyzed from the neck down after a stage lighting equipment fell on him at an outdoor concert at Wingate Field in Flatbush, Brooklyn, New York. And we've worked on we've worked on film sets, but those lights are incredibly heavy. <laughs> and hot. And hot, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> twisted bad luck there. Um, so after he, was, he became paralyzed, he was unable to play guitar, but he did write, sing, and directed the recording of his last album, New World Order. Mayfield's vocals were painstakingly recorded, usually line by line while lying on his back. So, I mean, it shows his dedication to the music, even when he could barely do it. He was still doing it, even just by line by line. That's pretty crazy. So, in February 1998, he had to have his right leg amputated, owing to diabetes. So, really <laughs> terrible luck for, for Curtis Mayfield, sad to say. Um, and then eventually, he did die from diabetes on December 26, 1999. That's really sad. So the last nine years of his life or so were pretty sad. He was basically like in a like state similar to Christopher Reeves, <laughs> paralyzed through most of his body. Except That's really his head. sad because he was really cool. But I'm I'm glad yeah. to see that even through the hardship, he was still willing to to, to put out music. Exactly. So he died in 1999. Two years earlier, he released his what I assume is his last album called New World Order. In 1997. We wanted to go ahead and play the title track from that album, also called New World Order. Let's take a listen to that. So hard, baby, that my hair's gray. We got to make a change. It's a brand new day. A new world order, a brand new day. It's a new a day. But yeah, no, it's it's a really good album, and you could tell, despite his uh, physical limitations, he still definitely puts his heart and soul into his work. It's really nice to see someone doing like something like that after such a tragedy, because it's so easy just, to just mm-hmm. like give up on life, as it were. Yeah. He did not. Pretty crunchy. So moving on a bit, um, another artist I want to mention is uh, another very famous artist, Rick James. Very famous from the 80s. And um, regarding his death, he actually died fairly recently on August 6, 2004, of a heart attack at the age of 58. And he was found dead in his L.A. home. And James, he unfortunately died from pulmonary failure and cardiac failure due to various health conditions compromised of diabetes, stroke, and a pacemaker that led to a heart attack. So basically, obviously, because Mm -hmm. of the pacemaker, he had had previous ones. Sadly, in doing his autopsy, he had a litany of drugs found in him, including alprazolam, diazam, hydrocodone, digoxin, methamphetamine, and cocaine. All at once? Were all found in his, all found in his blood. Well, that's Rick James for you, gosh. For those of you that don't know about Rick James, he was a bit of a partier, and uh, during a short stint, I believe in the 90s, uh, let me just double check that. Yeah, in the 90s, his drug use kind of spun out of control, and he became very addicted to cocaine, and he was actually caught with possession and thrown in jail in 1996, and was released in 2002, so basically he was in jail for what, eight, 
eight years, six mm. years. And he passed away in, what, 2006, so that's only four years after that. So, unfortunate circumstances for him. Yeah, basically after his popularity in the 80s. Oh, that's sad. More sad news about James is, I guess, he was friends with fellow Motown act Smokey Robinson and Marvin Gaye during the height of his career. And through his friendship, he kind of tested his friendship with Marvin Gaye after he started dating Gaye's former wife, Janice. <laughs> Rick James actually also became the godfather to Marvin Gaye's daughter, Nona. Mm. In Rick James's biography, he called Gay, quote, a crazy mother effer, <laughs> but said that he loved him to death. Gay was one of the few singers that James really, really idolized as a teenager, and James's relationship with both Gay and Robinson began shortly after James was signed to Motown in 1983. Mm. As we saw, unfortunately, Marvin Gay passed away in 1984. Yeah, but James was one of the last big Motown acts, I guess that you could say, out of the 80s before they really transitioned to more of a hip-hop role. Mm-hmm. I think they moved to New York in the 90s. So, oh, really? Because I know they moved to L.A. in, yeah. like, 73. They moved to L.A. in 73, and I think they moved to New York, and they're there now. Oh, cool. But, yeah, so Rick James just kind of had a screwed-up <laughs> screwed up life. Well, that, that's of kind of a... I think this is a case where it was actually... I wouldn't. I would say it was less unexpected than most of these other people. Exactly, yeah. It's one of those things where, like, it's a tragic way to go, but, like, it was very public that he was incredibly addicted to drugs, so it was kind of one of those only-a-matter-of-time yeah. kind of things. So, Although he did last definitely. a lot longer than 27. I mean, 58, that's pretty old. Yeah, really. Although it was tragic, it wasn't unexpected as so much as these other ones were. But still, kind of sad that such a famous artist could kind of, like, spiral out of control that mm-hmm. way. I mean, that's not unheard of. That happens all the time. It's just a shame. I guess because he died in 2004, he was actually recording an album at the time called Deeper Still that went unfinished due to his death and then was released two two years later as like an unfinished album in 2006. So I wanted to play the title track from that album for you guys so you can hear basically one of the last recording sessions he did before he tragically had a heart attack. So this is Deeper Still off the album Deeper Still. You make me feel good all the time. In 2003, Rick James actually appeared as part of a skit on Chappelle's show called Charlie Murphy's True Hollywood Stories, where him and Charlie Murphy, Charlie Murphy being the brother of Eddie Murphy, recounted some humorous stories of their experiences together during the early 80s. And during the skit, Rick James's character, played by Dave Chappelle, utters the now-famous catchphrase, I'm Rick James, bitch! God, those are so funny. And the skits, the skits were then punctuated by James as himself, explaining his past behavior with the phrase, cocaine is a hell of a drug. <laughs> I mean, I forgot about those. If you guys, if it's on YouTube or something, I encourage you guys to check that out because it's Dave Chappelle is hilarious. And as we learn here, Rick James is, as he quoted Marvin Gaye, is one crazy mother effort. That's true. I don't like to swear on the radio. Peter, do you want to tell us about our last tragic tragic accident? <laughs> sure. I'm not sure why you're laughing, Luke. Because uh, it's like the worst possible way to describe that. Okay. Now, actually, as you were talking about that, I remembered one of my favorite artists, Solaris, actually has one of, a story just like these, Minnie Rippers in. Oh, yeah. So she died at age 31. And actually, should I just, should I just talk about her? Because I was, I was just looking it up now. Yeah, sure. She didn't reach, the, like, the I think, the level of, of famousness as some of these other ones. But um, she did have a lot of um, connections with very famous people, including, like, Etta James, Chuck Berry... She was especially friends with um, Stevie Wonder. So what happened with her is that she, in 1976, she announced that she had breast cancer. And while she was only given six months to live, she actually continued touring over the next two years and also became a spokeswoman for the American Cancer Society. This is a case where, you know, you're only given six months to live. You can either sit around and feel sorry for yourself or you can keep going Mm -hmm. and making music. And that's what she did. Yeah, regardless, surrounding her breast cancer unfortunately it says that it had spread to her lymphatic system and because of that even though as you said she was given six months to live she toured for the next two years mm-hmm. however having her lymphatic system affected she um, eventually immobilized her right arm in early 1979 and one of her final sing- singing appearances on stage or on television excuse me her right arm basically was in like a fixed position during her performance because she couldn't move it mm-hmm. by that june she was confined to bed mm-hmm. Um, sadly, when she was admitted to Sears Sinai uh, Medical Center in L.A. that summer, 
she was lying in her husband's arms and she passed away while listening to a recording that Stevie Wonder had made for her. And the following Sunday, a funeral service was held that had more than 5,000 mourners. It's pretty impressive. Yeah. And just in the circumstances of her death, that she passed away while listening to a recording Stevie. Yeah. Stevie had written personally for her shows how good of friends they were. Yeah, I think that's probably a good example of what we were saying before, like a happy death, in a way. Because yeah. she was able to, to accomplish, you know, so much more after being basically having her death sentence. I know. Her last album was called Mini. She had another, another album that released the following year called Love Lives Forever, which was... Is, was she alive then? No, that was, that was all posthumous recordings. We could do Give Me Time, because that's... Yeah, we can do that. Should we listen to a clip of Give Me Time by Minnie Ripperton? I think we should, especially since there's a little harmonica solo by Stevie Wonder in there that I thought is kind of pertinent. She's a really good singer. This is actually my favorite um, album of hers because it was compiled by um, her husband, uh, mm-hmm. Richard Randolph, um, after she died. And you can really feel like the emotion in it. And it's kind of strange to describe. Mm-hmm. But the what they did with that album was that they used like recordings of hers that they never did anything with. And then they had they brought in all these uh, other famous singers that she had been friends with. And they sang like the other half or like performed music and to, to kind of complete these tracks because she only had the singing part. So it was kind of an interesting way to commemorate her death. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's that's really sweet and one of those kind of endearing. With how sad a lot of these stories are, it's really nice to see something as endearing as this. Yeah. Obviously the musical community really had a lot of respect for her. Yeah. So, it's that's kind of really cool. t- it's pretty touching. Yeah, it's 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 and like I said, it was it's kind of interesting to see how many people she was actually somewhat close to, considering that I don't think her name is nearly as widely recognized as some of these others. Well, that's, I guess, a small beam of light in this otherwise kind of dark episode. <laughs> the last artist that I did want to discuss is the artist Jackie Wilson. Not a super famous artist, but the circumstances of his death are nonetheless pretty uh, interesting, albeit sad. Mm-hmm. Jackie Wilson um, passed away of a heart attack at the age of 49. On September 29th, 1975, he was featured as one of the acts on Dick Clark's Good Old Rock and Roll Review, which is hosted by the Latin Casino near Cherry Hill, New Jersey. While performing, he was in the middle of singing the song Only Teardrops when he suffered a heart attack during the middle of the line, quote, my heart is crying. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, it's just ironic. Um, yeah. And then he collapsed on stage. And audience members initially thought that it was part of the act, but Dick Clark, that, when he saw it, ordered the musicians to stop the music and other band members that were set to perform in the act uh cornell gunter of the coasters was backstage and noticed that wilson wasn't breathing so gunter was able to resuscitate him and wilson was then rushed to a nearby hospital the medical personnel at the hospital worked for 30 minutes to try to stabilize his vitals but a lack of oxygen to his brain caused him to slip into a coma he briefly emerged from the coma in 1976 and was even actually able to take a few steps but slipped back into sort of a semi-comatose state basically where he was alive but not really well functioning Mm -hmm. And he was a resident of the Melford Retirement Center in Mount Holly, New Jersey, until he was eventually admitted to another hospital due to unable to be to take nourishment. And this comatose state basically persisted f- until 1984, where at the age of 49, he died from complications of pneumonia. Mm. So basically, after having a heart attack at the age of, what, I'm bad at math, 42 <laughs> in 1975, he basically passed away at 49 years later. Mm. after suffering in a semi-comatose state for almost a decade. Wow. So it's just terribly, terribly ironic and sad that he basically had a heart attack while singing his most famous song and while singing the line from that song, My Heart is Crying. Yeah, that's really creepy. Right? So due to that fact, I do want to play, although it wasn't the last song he recorded, it was quite literally the last song he performed. Yeah. Uh, I want to play a clip of his song, Lonely Teardrops. not a super huge artist but he definitely made a big impression on the uh soul and r&b scene mm. i guess his nickname was also mr excitement 
Um, I guess he's very exciting on stage. Unfortunately, not very exciting. Maybe, maybe perhaps that was even maybe the reason that people thought his heart attack was an act. He, he was so oh, erratic because, on stage. Yeah. They figured he was just goofing around. I guess, yeah, he was inducted into the Hall of Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1987, three years after he passed away. And Rolling Stone magazine ranked him 69 on the list of 100 greatest artists of all time. Nice. So that's pretty impressive. Yeah. So that is the sad demise of Jackie Wilson. 49, I mean, he technically didn't die nearly as, as young as some of these other guys, but the fact that he basically had a heart attack at 41 and then lived in a comatose state for the next eight years mm-hmm. was just horribly tragic. That kind of finishes up our list of famous soul singers who died prematurely. Yeah, we wanted to do a bit of a tribute to some of the artists that actually passed away this last year because it was a surprisingly large amount. Mm -hmm. So some of the artists that passed away this last year that were really prominent in soul and funk and R&B were Etta James, Whitney Houston, Donna Summer, Bob Babbitt, who, for those of you that don't know, was a major player for the house bands MFSB and the Funk Brothers, who we discussed in a prior episode. Mm -hmm. Donald Duck Dunn who we just discussed earlier. He was a bass player for Booker T and the MGs, as well as Otis Redding's band. And also Robin Gibb, who was one of the brothers of the band, the Bee Gees. Yeah, it seems like there's a hell of a lot in one year. Yeah. Um, actually, someone else that I thought of, who I thought was 2012, but I just looked it up, and it actually was very late, 2011, was um, Andrea True. Oh, yeah. Who was the, the porn star slash disco singer. Yeah. Her story wasn't her story wasn't as tr- it wasn't tragic. She died of old age, but we definitely one of these episodes got to tell her story because it's very interesting. Yeah. Anyway, we hope we didn't depress any of you. Yeah. With this subject, but we found it very fascinating. It, at the very least, I'm sure the listeners can appreciate that despite these artists passing away, they still live on through their music and through so our show. It's the responsibility of us and you to always keep the funk alive. That's true. And in our hearts. If you enjoyed our show, be sure to go ahead and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash getyourfunk. And also subscribe to us on iTunes. Give us comments on there because it bumps up our visibility and we want to be popular. And give us comments on um, Facebook as well so that we know how we're doing. If we suck, you can tell us we won't cry a lot. Well, we will, but we won't tell you that we cried. Yeah. And if you have any ideas for future episodes, we would love to hear your ideas as well. For sure. This has been... Your awesome, super awesome, quantifiable, quantum mechanics, awesome, I'm going to shut up now. This has been your DJ slash host, Kyle Storms. And this has been Peter. Bye, we love you. Bye. For more podcasts and the latest news in gaming, movies, and entertainment, visit 8thCircuit.com.